Earl of Jones, inspired by the countercultural movement sweeping New Zealand, embraced communal living when she was a teenager, 1979. By the age of 21, she was one of the founders of the Graham Downs farming community in the Motueka Valley. It was built on principles of anarchy and idealism with the aim of self-sufficiency, and it was a bold experiment. Olive Jones has written a book called Commune, Chasing a Utopian Dream, which describes the course of the commune from its beginning to its somewhat unfortunate end and possible revival. Olive Jones joins me now. Kia ora, Olive. How are you? Good. Hi, Kim. Really interesting book. Tell Hi. me about the early days. What was it like? Because you spent a lot of time alone at Graham Downs preparing the way. You mean the early days when we first bought the farm? Yes. Yes, well, we didn't um, take legal possession of the farm till the 1st of May in 1979, but I went up there in January um, to work for the guy we bought the land off and lived in my army tent up on the land for several months before the the hordes arrived with all the um, equipment and caravans and house trucks to start living communally. So the land was... A really, it's a beautiful, still is a very beautiful piece of land um, elevated above the Motueka Valley um, and below the foothills of the Kaharangi National Park. So it's very private and very fertile and a, a really beautiful place. And the ethos of the place was anarchic, as I said. Anyone could come and live Nobody owned anything. John Glasgow, I think, talked about anarchy as a basis for social organisation, self-governance, and the assumption that we are all capable, and I'm quoting from your book here, we are all capable of dictating the terms of our own lives without anyone else telling us what we can and can't do. Always a tempting kind of outlook, isn't it? Yeah, the the ideals behind it are, are fabulous. And how long did it work for? Well, I'm not sh quite sure when, at which point you'd say it stopped working. Um, for the first 10 years, it was really vibrant with a large number of people coming and going and huge food production, we worked draft horses. It was very much like pioneering, really, um, working, doing everything by hand without electricity, building our own shelter, and um, probably supporting 30 to 40 people most of the time in a, in a group of children. So it was a very dynamic and um, exciting place. People who came there were very caught up in the spirit of what was going on. But inevitably, after about 10 years, as people grow, get children and build their shelter, everything begins to decentralise. And we became quite 
overwhelmed by some of the people that were attracted to the place who weren't necessarily um, helping the cause, if you like. No. Did you always think that there was a danger that people would, given the freedom that everybody had to move in and not contribute, did you always fear that it might deteriorate? Um, I, I, it's quite hard to have a, a, a long-term view of something like that when you're caught up in the middle of it. I mean, I think we were very um, influenced by our naivety and the idea that if you've got a really strong core group that they can drive the, the whole thing. And I think so long as you do have a strong core group who are working effectively together, you can sort of draw in those more external, you know, challenging aspects of it. But I think it took several years before I thought, oh, I don't think this is going to quite pan out the way we want it to. I mean, it was very hard work. You worked incredibly hard. You talk in the book about the euphoria that you felt at the end of a hard day's work and you'd supplied the food, all of which you'd grown on the property, and people were sitting and eating and socialising. Wonderful time. But, my goodness, you worked hard, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I recall seeing um, in museums photos, early pioneering photos of these women with huge ropey-veined hands and, you know, carrying kerosene tins of water and leaning over fires it was kind of like that <laughs> for many years like hand milking cows for example is really physically um, hard work as well as everything that goes with processing the milk and all the rest of it your sister lived on a commune in australia what yes. were your parents uh, inclined to be relaxed about that um, relaxed. Yes, I I think they were quite sort of broad-minded. Um, I think probably there was more, um, they felt slightly perplexed than relaxed about it. Dad was um, always terribly concerned about security and when I joined this particular commune he constantly said, but you've got no security. Um, he was an accountant, so, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, and you didn't. I, you didn't have any security. No, no. I built a house and financed it. You know, bought the materials and built it my, myself. But the trust owned it, and I always knew that. And that was quite a difficult thing for a lot of people because they went into our houses were very modest. They were more cottages than big affairs. Sure. But, um, people went into it kind of knowing that, but not really understanding what it meant until it, they became disillusioned and wanted to leave and wanted money, you know, wanted compensation for building their houses and realised that that was not on the cards. It was probably the only commune in New Zealand, and there have been a few and still are a few, that had that ethos, was it? Yes, one of the few. There are a few um, 
ones that were operating on a smaller scale, like up the Coromandel, for example. But um, what set Graham Downs apart was that we bought a farm rather than sort of marginal bushland. And um, we had a big farming venture happening on it, albeit, you know, draft horses and done by hand. But um, it attracted a lot of people, so it had quite a big... um, you know, people, a lot of people knew about it. Did you... So you, you say your parents were quite relaxed and they were quite, you know, obviously quite a free-spirited couple, but there was a point in the book where you needed $60 for dental work and the way you raised that money was relatively unorthodox. <laughs> Sex work, basically, and you did fuel... Your, your life on Graham Downs with extra money from sex work, but could you not have gone to your parents and asked for that money, or were you, were you too principled to do that? Hmm. I don't really know why I didn't ask. I suppose it was... I was fiercely independent and probably a little bit sensitive about choosing a way of life that my father certainly didn't really approve of. Right. So to ask for money was kind of like admitting I was Admitting failure, yes. Yeah, yeah. Now I understand that. Um, what was the hardest part in all your time at Graham Downs? Ah, the meetings, I think. The meetings. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to, you know, Ah. survive a meeting and get somewhere. Um, And meetings You describe that, yeah, you describe that in the book, you know, where where they just became um, immovable. You know, you had camps and nobody would agree and therefore nothing happened. Is that what you mean? Yeah, or not so much nothing happened, but they they became these very intense places of conflict and you knew of, you know, particular really strong characters who would always be entrenched in their position and it didn't matter what one side proposed, the other would oppose. It was just, you know, always happened and I just found the conflict and the inability to move forward... Um, just so frustrating and so it really was upsetting as well over a long period of time because it just stymied what we were trying to achieve. What about your neighbours? They were pretty suspicious of you lot. Yes, (laughs) suspicious. Um, I described at one point a petition that 50 of the um, local farmers signed trying to um, to, for the council, asking them to stop communes before it's too late. And um, it was a very conservative, established, straight farming community that we moved into, and we were doing a pretty um, different thing to what they were doing, despite the fact that we were farming as well. We certainly gave Waimea Council a headache. <laughs> yes. I remember um, I was working at the Nelson Evening Mail around that time and a friend of mine had the Waimea Council round and so she covered the, you know, the agonising conflict that that went on at the council, you know, because people wanted 
communes to be possible, but then the local farmers didn't. You record one meeting with your neighbours, and you say it started unravelling almost immediately. (laughs) After I introduced our group and explained our intentions, I invited questions from the floor. One burly farmer scraped his chair back and stood up, and he said, There are two things I want to know. Are drugs part of your everyday lives? And do your children know who their fathers are? And then somebody said, was it John Glasgow, muttered at the back of the meeting, well, when it comes right down to it, can any child really be sure who their father is? (laughs) Which wouldn't have helped. No, no, not really. Were drugs part of your everyday life? Ah, for some people they were, but drugs being marijuana, um, for some people they didn't ever smoke. But yeah, marijuana was definitely part of, it was part of the counterculture and part of, yeah, was. It was kind of more prevalent than alcohol, actually, to begin with. Um, Also, monogamy wasn't high on the list of priorities, was it? uh, not for everyone. There were monogamous couples, for sure. But there were also the the whole business of free love. You know, the idea that we were um, rejecting the values of the mainstream society. We were, you know, trying to create an alternative to. Part of that was about, um, you know, exploring. Your sexuality, we were young as well, a lot of people were still single, so it was an environment that it was it was a very permissive environment, and, and people did explore um, different ways of being in relationships. Yeah. Can you see that echoed today? I mean, it seems like most generations have a version of this, people who recoil from the prevailing wisdom. Yes. And at the moment, maybe we have, I don't know, people who are so far into conspiracy theories that they they see all of the establishment as some kind of enemy, as to a certain extent some of you did, right? Yes. I've, um, I've thought about those parallels with watching, you know, the unfolding of um, protests against vaccination and you know all the conspiracy theorists that are often quite fringe dwellers or the extremely suspicious of the establishment and it's it's an, another version of probably what we were going through back in the 70s and 80s the basic thinking behind Graham Downs was that if you allow people complete freedom they will behave well, they will behave better than if you contain them within rules and regulations. What do you think about that now? Well, I think that is an expression of our naivety, you know, believing in the inherent goodness in all people. And I just don't... I think you're always going to have self-interested people and you're always going to have opportunists and freeloaders and... And they are always going to take advantage of something, no matter how good it is, it, in inverted commas, it appears to be. And have you debated that with 
somebody else, maybe, you know, John Glasgow, who was one of the co-founders or the original dwellers at Graham Downs, does he still believe that there is a way for goodwill to crowd out ill will and free loaders within an anarchic system? Um, I think he probably still supports the the kind of pure intention uh, uh, that goes behind anarchy and the ideological sort of underpinnings of that. But um, I guess he would argue that society's not quite ready for that yet. We're not quite evolved enough, if you like. Seems a bit of a cop-out, really, doesn't it? Well, there's no ideal, I don't think. No. There is no ideal society, and I think we had this... Uh, idea that we could create this wonderfully equal ideal society that everyone who came there could you know um, fulfill their best be their best selves in it but the reality is that we aren't able to do that really there was an extraordinary um, episode that seemed to illustrate quite what an independent person you were this was before you went to Graham Downs and you lived on a community in Tahuna and you had to take a draft horse over the hill for grazing, over Takaka Hill. Yeah. And when you went back to visit the horse, it had died. And so you set about skinning it, <laughs> as you do. As you would. Yeah. Well, I was really into making leather, and I was also fully committed to what being self-sufficient was, which meant not wasting anything. Yep. And um, so why would you put a perfectly good skin in the ground when you could um, turn it into hmm, saddlebags for a horse, for example? Yeah. Although you took it to a tannery and they messed it up, right? Yeah, they did, really. Uh. But all my uh, attempts at making leather sort of got messed up. It's pretty hard to make really good leather by hand. Were there other philosophies that worked their way into the community? You mentioned Bhagwan, which turned out not to be a great idea. Did many people subscribe to that? Yes, there were a lot of people seeking a kind of spiritual... Enlightenment, I suppose, mm -hmm. and the Orange Movement, as the Rajneesh thing was, was it, it rose in a huge, um, explosive way in the eighties, and a lot of people were really caught up and carried away by it. The documentary documentaries they did on building the ranch in Oregon are just yes. mind-boggling. Yes, and in a way, they demonstrate. That whole movement demonstrates what people can achieve if they all work together for a particular cause. But again, that all went really pear-shaped because, you know, power corrupts and all the rest of it. But, yeah, there was not only the Bhagwan thing. People um, who visited the Graham often came via, you know, the ashrams of um, India and there were a lot of people on a sort of personal spiritual quest did you ever worry that 
a very charismatic person might turn Graham Downs into a sect of some kind? No, because there were too many really strong characters, all probably quietly aspiring to be that themselves. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Huh. But, um, Keeping themselves I, in check. Yeah. I referred to one guy at Tahuna Farm who really um, self-styled himself as a guru, um, but he could really only um, be there once we'd all left, once we bought this farm and moved out. But, no, the... Um, I don't think it was too anarchic for anybody to um, become that person, really. Mm. You described the freeloaders and the people who came and didn't contribute, but it seems to me that the main change came about when people started having children, and that cramps your style when it comes to mixing and mingling and dancing and playing guitar all night long. Absolutely. Makes people want to have their own spaces, right? Yes. And so could the commune have accommodated that kind of nesting instinct? Well, in a sense it did, in that um, people built their houses. And um, so the main house where, to begin with, we all ate all our meals together every day, that diminished and dwindled, which had a huge impact on the way the community operated because you know we did really diversify but it's also life stages you know when you're young you want to hang out with everybody and have a big social life and do things together and as you age and get your family and build your own shelter the inclination is to yeah settle into the kind of family life probably that you came from to an extent. I can't help thinking that when you went back to it, you described this in the book, when, you know, it had got fairly squalid and people did not subscribe to any kind of ethos. They just wanted to hunker down there. A lot of drinking, a lot of fringe dwellers. It must have been terribly sad for you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I still carry a lot of sadness about how such a beautiful, bright dream kind of, you know, unraveled to the extent that it did. But, I mean, inevitably, if you have open land and anybody can go there, you're going to collect people who are kind of life's refugees, if you like, or got nowhere else to go. And it is a very beautiful place. So. And you had, part of your ethos was charity, so... It wasn't uh, conceivable to turn people away or throw people out. No. no. Well, it kind of happened. Uh, some people were told to leave, and in some extreme cases, the trustees of the trust that owns the land um, issued people with sort of eviction orders. But it was not easy to... I mean, as soon as one person went, another one would kind of fill the space in a way. Uh, you would never live communally again? <laughs> well, my friends and I have talked about having setting up a deep veranda trust for our old age. Oh, haven't I we think, all? Yeah. The, whole, <laughs> the idea of co-housing with all your mates in your old age, you know, and yeah. employing some of the kids to sort of point you back in the right direction when you get disoriented. Um, yeah, it appeals, but I don't, I'm not sure if I would do it. And there is yet 
the possibility of life at Graham Downs, right? Not for you, but it may emerge as a different form of community. Yes, yes, as um, I'm on the trust that owns the land and we are really keen to, um, you know, attract young people who have the right, have the same kind of ideals that the trust holds to, you know, get back into a farming collective enterprise on that land. But no anarchy. Probably not. <laughs> Olive, lovely to talk to you. Olive Jones, her book's called Commune, Chasing a Utopian Dream in Aotearoa.